Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with the illustrious host of CNBC's Tech Check. That would be Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, welcome back. Hello. Well, hello. Happy to be here from the San Francisco studio. I know one market. I actually have to drop you a uh, drop a dime. I, I might be out there. I might be on a plane early Thursday morning. So maybe I will see Ooh. you. I have to make a decision here in the next couple hours or so. But I always love to see you in that backdrop. And I always love being out there for, um, you know, just doing shows out there. It just feels like San Francisco is not dead yet. It's not dead, but you might argue it's not totally alive. But I, I like coming to New York because it feels like, you know, a lot more lively. We've still, we've still got a long way to go in terms of bringing SF back. No, I, I, I get it. I get it. All right. Well, listen, we'll stick around. We have a great conversation with Molly Jong Fast. She is a special correspondent to Vanity Fair. She also the host of the Fast Politics podcast. She and I talk about kind of her use in Twitter and, and how she amassed a huge following, how she's leveraged it as a journalist, as somebody who's kind of built a little podcast empire over there. And it's kind of some really interesting takes from Molly and, and, and what she's thinking about the platform and, and some of the other things that she's trying out. So stick around for that. All right, Debo, last week, you and I spent a little time talking about the lead up into Google's I.O. conference, user conference. And we were talking about just you know, kind of the narratives around Microsoft and, and ChatGPT and how they've integrated it and how out of the gate it appeared that Google or Alphabet had just kind of faltered a little bit. There's been a whole host of just, I think, you know, people kind of downplaying Sundar and, and his role in this kind of last phase because, you know, here's a guy who's supposedly been very focused on AI, but they haven't been doing it, I guess. They, they haven't been wearing, winning the PR game. But that narrative, I feel like, has really shifted in the last week and a half. I'm looking at my fact set machine right now. I see Google up 3.5% on the day, uh, above 120. This is a stock that was trading as low as like 91 or 92. This was a few months ago when it felt like Microsoft was kind of eating their lunch. I'd love to get your takeaways because some of the tech folks that you and I follow, both walked out of this event, I think, a bit more optimistic than how they were feeling earlier in the year. Sometimes slow and steady wins the race. And Sundar Pichai has been calling Google an AI-first company forever and ever, but really Microsoft stole the zeitgeist, right, with ChatGPT and OpenAI. So I think that once again, last week with Google I.O., the race shifted. And you've heard people come out and say, oh, he's not a wartime CEO. People like Brad Gerstner, who says, you know, he's not doing enough and you have to capture the imagination with this giant platform shift from the get-go. The thing I was most impressed in, the only thing that I actually cared about, really, from IO, there's lots of really cool things around the edges, but when you saw the stock just really 
start to move higher was when they talked about search. And that's always been the existential question hovering over Google and the rise of generative AI and chat GPT. Is it going to kill search? And I think that he put those concerns to bed, him and his team, because Senator Pichai, he only did some of the intros and he really let some of the other executives walk through the products, but it's called Search Labs. And there was this video that was just really useful. And that's what it's all about, right? They've talked about it, but they had to show people. And that's what they did here. They showed people how the future of search is going to work when you add generative AI. And it was so impressive. No more 10 blue links. It was, you know, in this video, and I urge any, everyone to watch this, they showed how when you actually type something in the search field, it comes up with images, with videos, with side-by-side -side comparisons, with TikToks or, or YouTube shorts. So it was just a more interactive, and you could actually see for the very first time how Google's wealth of research and knowledge and years dedicated to artificial intelligence behind the scenes was going to come out and be front and center. And Sundar Pichai was able to do it in his own way. Remember we were talking last week, Dan, how he had to come out, do something flashy, do something big. It turns out he didn't really have to do that. He talked about responsibility. He talked about doing this very carefully, and he still managed to wow in his sort of thoughtful, steady way. You made a great point last week that this is a user conference, but obviously a lot of analysts are there, a lot of media is there, you know, a lot of like just kind of tech practitioners. And you said this is really about the tech community getting a good feel for this. And it's interesting when I think about the analyst community, there's like 53 analysts who cover it, 48 rated a buy, five a hold, no sells. The stock's like a one and a half percent away from its 52 week highs. It's gained 150 billion dollars in market cap in just the last kind of week, week and a half or so. And so to your point, they didn't need to do anything flashy. They just needed to talk about the things that they had been doing, right? And how they are basically going to harness the monopoly. And they don't use that term, but we can use it that they have, you know what I mean, in, in digital ads and then also in the search and show how it's going to be just massively augmented. The other thing I thought is pretty fascinating is that they have what, five properties with over a billion users and they have 15 products that have over a half a billion or so. When you think of that scale and you think on the on the margins, just introducing this tech that they have been working on on so many different ways across all those different platforms, the productivity that will be unleashed and their ability to monetize it is going to be truly fascinating. And you just touch on what I'm hearing more and more out here in the Bay Area is why a lot of folks, investors, think that big tech is going to win this whole thing, right? They have that user base in the billions, right? And that's kind of the argument. I don't know where you are on Apple these days, Dan, but, you know, I've heard the more, more the argument for the next leg of move upwards or the next valuation, the way that Apple can reach higher heights <laughs> is because of that installed base, 2 billion, right? So you have to think that even though you don't hear a lot about what Apple's doing on the artificial intelligence front, when they're ready, they can just deploy it to that install base. And that's more powerful than what any startup can do. Apple has their worldwide developers forum. I think it starts on June 5th. And, and again, you know, if you listen to that call with Apple and Tim Cook, I mean, they, they talked about AI a little bit. They didn't kind of lean in in the same way. For them, I think that there is risk to their app stores. I think one of the things that people have been most excited about 
about is thinking about a lot of these kind of generative AI plugins and, you know, in and around the web and, and what that might do to some of these app stores, right? And so like, that's something that I think is definitely a flank for them. But when you think about wearables and you think about they're, they're going to supposedly introduce like an AR, VR, like a mixed reality headset, and you think of their reliance on services, because that's really where they obviously get their margin, or at least they've been able to be re-rated. You know, you think about like these platforms, like you just mentioned, and you say to yourself, there's got to be a whole host of ways that can make Apple deploying these sorts of technologies across an iOS install base of 2 billion, a really powerful investable idea. And it might be you know, it's one of those things that's helping this stock levitate. This one is almost back to its all-time highs, but but I don't think there's a lot of AI built into it right now, at least into the valuation. In a way, it doesn't matter. All they have to do is flick a switch, right, with that installed user base. And that's what Google did last week. It had to show that it's going to evolve search and then offer that to all of its users and keep that sort of monopoly that it has on that. I, I don't know if it's going to be in the same way. Certainly, this was just an early preview. But what have we learned so far, Dan? Judging this race in the early innings is very, very challenging. I'm getting a little nervous here, Debo, and we've talked about this. So like the main headline today on Amazon, okay, the top, uh, you know, on fact set. So this means that like it's the most read sort of thing. And here's a day where the stock is up almost 3%. It's that Amazon plans to add chat GPT style search to its online store. And I say to myself, okay, man, like they already use tons of AI recommendation engines and, you know, across this AWS and all the services they offer there. And so I feel like this is getting a little frothy with the biggest names in the market. And that makes me a little nervous when you look at the narrowing breadth in the NASDAQ and you look at these five or six names, including NVIDIA, which is about to make a new 52-week high up 100% on the year. This is a stock that has a $700 billion market cap trading at 65 times earnings and 25 times sales. It seems like we're front-end loading a lot of excitement about this in some of the biggest names in the market at a time where there's a lot of tech stocks and there's a lot of other parts of the market, whether it's energy, whether it's industrials, whether it's financials that trade really, really poorly, and not to mention small caps. Like, like you'd think that the small cap index, the Russell 2000, is allergic to AI. I think the term you're looking for, Dan, is AI washing. Remember greenwashing? It's now AI washing. Any company just slap an AI sticker onto anything and it's a pop. That Amazon story, by the way, made no sense to me because your generative AI is only as good as the ecosystem it takes from, right? And Amazon, I mean, when you look for things, there's got a lot of problems. You can't figure out what's good, what isn't. Maybe putting AI on that generative AI and that will fix it. But I, I, I was reading things like, you know, it's going to be competitive with Google and Microsoft. I, I didn't understand that at all. Well, the one thing I would say, you know, about Amazon, and you followed this, I know, for the last few years, you know, they're becoming an advertising juggernaut, right? So when you think about how they might be able to use some of this tech to better monetize some of the search that's going on for products and how that works with advertisers and different sorts of listers and, and the like. And then when you think about it from a logistics standpoint, and then you think about how it will be deployed across all the services on AWS, right? Like you can start to say this narrative, but again, these are stocks that have always traded very expensive to the broad market for the fact that you were assuming that they will use innovation, right, to continue to push forward. And so to me, I feel like it's just a really weird time. Interest rates have gone up so dramatically in such a short period of time. Fed funds is at 5%. We have a lot of data that suggests the economies are cooling. 
other than employment. And you say to yourself, the rush into these names because of this technology that's been around for a long time, but the premium valuation, that's the thing. That, that, that's the thing that it makes me very nervous that if for any reason we have a reason for the broad market to sell off or people want to revalue the market, they're going to do it right here in these names. All of the risk, the entire stock market has been placed on this narrative in these names. Okay, well, let me let me then try to say the flip side of that, because yes, we these companies are bought on that on that innovation, but have we ever seen this big of a platform shift, right? I think that's the question. Could this be bigger than anything we ever dreamed of? And I was watching today the uh, Sam Altman testimony in Congress. And within the first, I think, let's call it 10, 15 minutes, generative AI was compared to the first cell phone, the creation of the internet, the industrial revolution, the printing press, and the atomic bomb. <laughs> so if you think that this new platform chip falls anywhere between those, it's going to be bigger than maybe anything that we've seen so far in you know, at least a decade. So I don't know. I, I understand the promise. You have to figure out the difference between an NVIDIA and a C3 AI. Um, and on the, on the other side of that, you brought up Amazon and advertising. There's this a note that I, I like to follow from Bernstein, and they've been putting together over the last few weeks an AI roadkill list, right? And those are the companies that are going to be eviscerated by this shift. And it's hard to tell. We talk about Google, right? It was down 17% after Satya Nadella came out and wowed everyone with Bing meets ChatGPT. It's up 30% since then. So it's just tricky. Companies that look like they might lose in this new shift may actually win like a Chegg, right? We saw what happened, but they say they're going to use AI to come back. We, we don't know. Everyone's saying that. From my experience in the markets, and, and you know, I, I think I quoted this last week, our friend Dan Niles was on a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned a quote from Bill Gates, who's just said that, you know, technology generally in the near term is very overhyped when you have these sort of platform ships, and but long term, it's kind of underhyped. And I think we're in this kind of very overhyped, trying to put your finger on that and nail that from an investment standpoint. And I'll give you a couple examples is really hard. And, you know, it's interesting because I saw this story, you know, CNBC spends a lot of time reporting on the whales and the big, you know, 13F filings and what they did the last quarter. And we know that it's kind of backward looking. And, and the headline here was Stan Druckenmiller, David Tepper, lead family offices betting on AI. It was talking about how they kind of piled into these AI stocks in Q1. Now, we have no idea what their holdings are now. Stan Druckenmiller was just talking about this, I think, in the press over the last couple of weeks. But, you know, when I heard that, I immediately went back to, I remember when Stan Druckenmiller, when he was at the Soros Fund, okay, this was in the late 90s, they were really late to the internet trade. They basically shorted it because they thought it was overhyped. They lost, I think, like a half a billion dollars, which back then I think was a lot of money in the investing. And then you know what they did? They turned it around and they got long $6 billion of tech stocks. And you know what they ended up doing? Losing billions of dollars in tech stocks. And so my point is some of the best and the brightest get it wrong all the time. And I want to take you to a conversation where Brad Gerstner of Altimeter was on with Scott Wapner, I think on the halftime report a couple of weeks ago. And I saw you talking about it a little bit. He was talking with Scott and, and Brad, I, I know Brad, he's a, a really, really I, I know you know Brad, he's a really bright guy and he's got a long track record investing in public and private markets and in innovative tech. And you know, this was just two weeks ago, he talked about selling Google, selling Alphabet, 
because he felt like they were not going to be a winner. Now, Brad is nimble enough. He could turn around and change on a dime and he could get back long it and have a different view after. Maybe he's one of the reasons why Google has shot up 10% in the last week. I'm just a chamoli, right? I'm a guy who trades on my own. I, I'm on fast money. I'm, I'm doing my podcast. What I say holds no weight, okay? Like literally, I mean, other than maybe my experience and my track record doing it and, and you watch me, you listen to me and you think, oh, that guy, I think he knows what he's talking about and you're judging me by my last trade. Those guys are different. They are managing big pools of capital and, and really important pools of capital money. And a lot of times, you know, millions, if not hundreds of millions of their own money. So it's a different ball of wax. I'm just curious your thought when you hear some of those sorts of moves by some of these big investors. Well, I like Brad Gerstner because he's based here and he spends a lot of time thinking about technology companies. And he, I, I believe he invests also. Certainly he has an eye on the private markets, the up and comers. And, you know, he did a good job with Meta before when a lot of people had soured on the company. And he said, listen, this could be Zuckerberg's iPhone moment. And I mean, it's still too early to tell, but, you know, the stock is up hugely since then. And the street seems to agree with him on Google. I mean, it's so divided, right, among commentators, not around the stock markets, because Alphabet shares have just gone up this year after a blip when Microsoft came out with its chat, GPT and Bing product. But those that want to sell Alphabet, I don't I don't know what they're looking at. Maybe they don't think that Senator Pichai is a wartime CEO, that he doesn't have what it takes to compete with the Satya Nadellas and the others of this world. I wonder though, I'd ask him if he changed his mind after IO, because I was skeptical before IO and I walked away from it saying, okay, game changer. Seeing how search works, that puts everything in perspective and gives at least me clarity, just as a commentator, you know, I'm not allowed to buy or trade stocks or anything like that. But, you know, I try to try to understand it from a journalistic point of view. And it kind of clicked for me at IO. All right. Here's the last thing we'll hit before we get out of here. This was an article, I think it was in Bloomberg, and we'll put it in the show notes. It's about Michael Burry of the big short fame. Two of his positions in his fund, Skyon, are Alibaba and JD, and they make up 20%. Okay. So, so we know he likes to make concentrated sort of positions. And again, I'm not asking you to opine on Burry and, you know, his track record. It also, I think the article spoke about how he loaded up on some regional banks like First Republic and the like and PacWest in the quarter too. And those obviously probably didn't work out particularly well. But, you know, you reported in Asia for years, and I think you know the psychology of the markets over there and sometimes the disconnect between U.S. investors, right, and what we're seeing. And I also think it's interesting in a week where we've seen weaker than expected data out of China suggesting that maybe their reopening trade is not going as well as maybe some had hoped. And, you know, Alibaba has been a really, really volatile stock, as is JD. And I'm just curious, when you see a headline by an investor like that over here in the U.S., anything that kind of hit your radar uh, on that one? It did. When I look at these two names, Alibaba and JD.com, these are two spin-out plays. These companies have agreed or going to, however you look at it, they've agreed to Beijing or they're doing it on their own, whatever, it's all the same thing, to spin out certain divisions. So the idea is that the collective pieces are going to be worth more than what it is now, but it's also a bet that maybe all of that regulatory pressure, the threat of a breakup of Beijing doing it itself and telling them exactly how to do it is over. So in a way, these are they're interesting bets. Again, I go back to what I always say about Chinese stock names. Everything can change on the whim of the government of Beijing, but it feels like they don't have the scale, especially if they're when they break up and they're going to 
go public, all the different parts of these two companies, that they're not as much of a threat in terms of the data that they hold all together. It's going to be broken up, not as much of a threat to the government. And I think that they've been so hobbled. You said they've been volatile. Certainly, they've been so hobbled already by Beijing that it seems like as good a time as any. The only thing I would say is that at least Alibaba, I'm not sure about JD.com, has golden shares, right? These are little stakes that Beijing entities, Communist Party entities are able to take in these companies that give them outsized voting power or different things like that, which investors just have no way of knowing until it's done. So that's the risk. But hey, you can trade China to own it on the long term is is a much tougher proposition. Both of these stocks that traded for years in the lead up to the pandemic at a premium to the Chinese market in general, but then also many of its peers, I think here in the U.S., now trade at a huge discount. You know, Baba trades at about 11 or 12 times this year and that's expected earnings and then JD about the same. And so if you think that China's one or two years behind us as far as their reopening and you like the demographics of their emerging middle class and yada, yada, and then, then the positioning that these guys have here, especially with the firewall that exists, this is a cheap way to play that. But the discount may also represent those golden shares and the influence that the Communist Party has over this company. And, and again, where's Jack Ma? We haven't seen Jack Ma in three years. Th those are some scary propositions. And I think as a U.S. investor, especially as you worry about what our geopolitical makeup with them is going to be, especially as it relates to Taiwan, there is risk. But maybe that risk is being priced in at these valuations. Yeah, there's also more competition on the ground. I mean, we know Alibaba and JD.com because they've been public forever, but there's the Pinduoduos and the Meituans and the ones that maybe are less familiar to an American audience. These are sort of the new new players, the new big players that still have their scale in China. And I, I would just mention that it's like if you don't want the kind of idiosyncratic risk of, let's say, one of those names and trying to pick a winner, if you look at the FXI, that's the iShares, large cap, ETF, Meituan, Alibaba, Tencent, they are the three largest holdings. They're each about nine percent JD is in there, Baidu's in there, Netties. So, you know, and there's also some industrials and some financials in there. But like, that's probably one way if you say, oh, I want like X percent of my portfolio, maybe, you know, mid to low single digits percentage. That's one way to do it. You're just not going to have the outperformance of one of those sorts of names, but it might be a way to disperse some risk. All right, Debo, I really appreciate all of your insights. You're reporting from on the ground at Google I.O. last week. It was great to hear it all on CNBC. You can obviously always check her out at CNBC's Tech Check. So thanks a lot, Debo, for being here. Thank you, Dan Nathan. I'll see you next week. And stick around for my conversation with Molly Jong Fast of Fast Politics. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Molly Jong Fast, welcome back to OK Computer Podcast. 
Thank you for having me, Dan Nathan. We just got done on your fine podcast talking about the debt ceiling. That's something I spent a lot of time talking about. I hope your audience, their eyes didn't glaze over a little bit here. But, you know, I think your pod is fantastic. You just hit 100 on the new pod. So congrats um, on that. Fast politics. politics for any of yeah. you out there, check that out in your favorite podcast store. Also, she is a special correspondent to Vanity Fair, um, and she has a newsletter called Faster Politics, so you can sign up for it there. But interestingly enough, and this is one of the reasons I really wanted to chat with you here, you are a monster on Twitter. You have a million followers. You no longer have a blue check. You have been very critical of Elon Musk since he's taken over Twitter, and, and I think that was late October of 2022. And I just wanted to kind of check in a little bit because you have all of these mini uh, operations here, and you know Twitter has been a great vehicle for you to build a big following over the years. You disseminate a lot of your pods, a lot of your stories, your interactions with a lot of folks. I'm sure you've met some of your best contacts in the business here on that. What's it feel like right now? And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Elon just hired a new CEO. But what does the mood feel like on Twitter? I am no longer on Twitter. Elon and his goons kicked me off Twitter for an April Fool's joke on on April 1 here. And I Did you impersonate someone? I made an April Mm -hmm. Fool's joke. I left my header as risk reversal. I left my, obviously, my handle at risk reversal. I changed the name to Elon and I put a picture of Elon um, in the thing. And I basically quote tweeted a tweet of Elon calling me a doofus responding to a CNBC video that I was on. And basically the joke was, hey, at risk reversal, Dan is not really a doofus, blah, blah, blah. And I was kicked off within 30 minutes and I (laughs) and haven't been back on there. So I'm curious. And, and, you know, I'll just say this, Molly, I'm missing a lot of stuff that I normally would have seen on Twitter, right? Um, but I'm not really missing anything. Do you know what I mean? And I don't right, know right. the time that I'm wasting. So what's it feel like for you? You've been really calling out the Elon BS on a whole host of things for a very long time. I and mean, this really isn't about Elon. It's really about the platform and the service. And what has it felt like to you in 2023? So I've actually really enjoyed being on Blue Sky which is this Twitter substitute. It's in beta right now, but it's about to sort of open its wait list. It's like Twitter without the kind of tech bros. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but but ironically, I mean, it's backed by Jack Dorsey, who founded Twitter, right? And so it's a decentralized kind of messaging app. And that was one of the- yeah, nobody owns it. I mean, it's certainly not without its problems. And and I don't know that it comes to replace Twitter, but it, it's nice to be in a place that's not quite, where people aren't quite so interested in destroying you for your opinion. No, look, I think Elon bought Twitter and has really worked hard to completely just push the value out of it bleed the value out of the platform. For example, I was thinking about it yesterday because there had been this reporting, again, reporting I think is generous, but there had been some discussion that George Soros had died of a heart attack. George Soros then tweeted, I haven't died of a heart attack. You know, it looked like it was George Soros, but because there's no verification system anymore, it could have not been George Soros. And I mean, that is the fundamental problem with Twitter is that by taking away these blue checks, he's really made it very hard to use. And so like, I don't know that like he sort of made it this case that it was about freedom and about a great sort of equalizer and that you should be able to pay for your blue check. But what it's actually done is just made the platform really hard to use. And that's like 
a really good example. It's a sort of metaphor for the larger problem with the site, which is it's very spammy. There's a lot of porn. There's a lot of like ads in the replies, you know, and then there are this sea of Elon bros who defend him. But that's not, I think, as relevant. It's just like it's quite hard to use now. Are you spending less time? Are you tweeting yes, less? Absolutely. Are you are yeah. you engaging with people far less? A lot of people look at me and say, oh, you just have a beef with Elon. I was like, I don't have a beef with Elon. I mean, I don't like the guy. But, but by the same token, the product has gotten worse. The dialogue yeah. has gotten worse. And it feels like on many instances that it, it really is not a place that is listen and this is one of the main reason why advertising resident revenue i think in december was reported was down like 40 percent year over year and i'm sure that's continued because all of the things that you just mentioned that started popping up this year when they did away with their trust and safety and the like advertisers don't want to place ads next to content that is unsavory and so i'm just curious if they lose someone like you with a million plus followers who had a lot of engagement on the platform isn't that part of the problem? Because I don't know how you replace that. I mean, there's only so much that Tucker Carlson, who never used the platform a whole heck of a lot right. before he was kicked out of Fox, you know, there's only so much he's going to replace and it's not going to be particularly good. And it's not going to be the sort of place that you're going to want to be either. What I think is pretty interesting about these social media platforms is that the power users, the people who use it a lot, find other places. I mean, look, I built a large following on Twitter, but you know, that's all fair and love and social media. You'll build another platform or you won't. I mean, I don't know. I think it's been useful for me, but I also think like I got that platform by tweeting a lot and spending hours and hours and hours tweeting. So ultimately it's like with anything else. I mean, I think what's interesting about these tech companies is the content the tweets were what they used to get the ads, right? To get the people there, to get, you know, that free content was how they got there. And now they want to charge us for content, which is super fascinating. And you see, and that's true on Instagram too, that there's like this tax, but it's interesting because if you think about like the damage that tech companies have done to local news, it's kind of amazing. They have all of a sudden like Craigslist and the, and Instagram too. I mean, Instagram really killed fashion magazines. So if you think about it, like these people who used your content to make money are now charging you to make content, which will make them money. I mean, Twitter ceases to exist when people stop tweeting. I mean, I think A, this is a very dicey proposition. I don't think that's how you make money. And I think these tech companies have become humongous. I do think like media was maybe not fast enough to get on tech originally. But I do think that that, you know, I hope that that relationship shifts a little bit and people go back. I mean, yeah. it doesn't seem likely when you think about. Um, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Well, no, but I mean, what he wants to do is turn it into the X app. So this super app where it's it's, right. it's messaging, it's payments, it's a whole host yeah. of other services. We've why seen. wouldn't you trust him? I mean, well, he seems so trustworthy. Right. And I guess that's a big issue is like, for instance, um, he owns this company wholly, doesn't have a board that he has to answer to. He does right. have some bankers that he took out $13 billion in debt. And so when you think about just how poor this business is doing, how difficult that might be for him to pay back that debt. But it was interesting, you know, one of the big criticisms about him and running this platform is that he's also the CEO of Tesla, which is a half a trillion dollar market cap company. He's the CEO of SpaceX, which is a hundred billion dollar base company, which they just had a rocket explode last month 
month. Starlink yeah, is best. the CEO. Neuralink yeah. is the CEO. Boring Company is the CEO. The list goes on and on and on. And, and the Tesla shareholders wanted him away from Twitter. So he makes this announcement last week. He's hiring a woman named Linda Yaccarino. And Linda was a big ad exec at NBC Universal. And it was interesting because right out of the gate, a lot of people were like very relieved that he hired somebody to do this. They felt for a whole host of reasons, just his influence on the platform wasn't particularly good. If you're a Tesla shareholder, you have not enjoyed his involvement there. He's alienated a lot of potential Tesla buyers. And so when you think about this woman, Linda Yaccarino, she's been praised as this genius ad executive, full disclosure. You know, I'm a CNBC contributor. It's owned by NBC Universal. I have met her. She's a very impressive woman. And if you just look at all of the quotes about her and all the press since she was announced, and, and here's one, this is, you know, Sir Martin Sorrell. He is uh, the head of WPP, a legend in the business. And this is his quote. This was in the Wall Street Journal. She's probably just what Elon needs to establish trust among advertisers. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, is it because if she's just a figurehead, which she's likely to be, he owns this company again, wholly. So she's just going to be really like the CEO of the ad business. But if the ad business is going away because the product's shifting so much, I'm just not sure how important that is. So I'm just curious, what was your take on this announcement? And there was plenty of Twitter users, you know, they had some big issues with her announcement. I think you were tweeting about it, or I think I saw it on your Instagram stories or something like that. What was your take on this hire here? And does, does it give you optimism about what the platform could turn into? I think it's going to be very hard for Elon to convince his people who happen to be largely these kind of very far right, very reactionary people who believe in QAnon and believe that Trump is the one true savior. I mean, that crew to accept someone who comes from NBC Universal, I think that's going to be a, a heavy lift. And I think it's pretty interesting. You know, Elon has won these people over. They are kind of the third rail in Republican politics. They're the people Trump got out. They're the people who are sort of in his post-truth bubble. That crew, you know, that's the cat turds and the people like that. Those people, I think, are going to have a hard time accepting a woman CEO who comes from mainstream media. I also think like what I don't think Elon understands is that like, I think he thinks that these people have been won over by him because they like him or that there's some sort of billionaire appeal. Again, the one of the hugest disadvantages for some of these people is that they have no one around them who can whoever tell them the truth. Right. Like yeah. when you're rich enough, everybody just tells you you're great. And so that affects the way you interface with the world. And it gives you a kind of confidence that I think is very dangerous. And so. I mean, again, I'm not in his head, but it does really seems like from his behavior, I just think he thinks he has more control than he does. This crew is pretty rough and I think they're pretty mad. And, you know, they've sort of gotten a lot of juice from Elon and they've also, you know, they've seen him be very receptive to them. You know, he's almost been yeah. like a 24 hour tech service. And, you know, you see these people in the alt-right who are pretty sketchy you know, where Elon is like catering to their whims and, you know, looking out, you know, sort of going after their enemies, et cetera. And I think that relationship is going to be hard for Elon to keep going. And it runs really counter to the relationship he has with his stockholders. This crew is not good for business. Tesla's stock rallied because supposedly 
He's going to be spending less time on Twitter. But then if you saw, you know, what happened on Twitter by the faithful that you just talked about, they were like digging through Linda Yaccarino's bio and right. they this, there was kind of some connection to the world, you know, the, the dollar, world the, the right. world, no, the world economic forum, right. you know, the, the thing. And they think, you know, Elon and, you know, there's a tweet for it. Obviously they went and found some tweet where he was railing against that. And I, I don't know. I, I think she's got a really, really tough job. I don't think the advertisers are coming back. They really probably needed a product person that could give right. some sort of faith that they could build out the platform that he wants to build. I just don't see that um, happening anytime soon. All right, one last thing on this. I think it's really interesting because I think there's this amazing tweet. I think it was from a couple years ago talking about just how the idea of free speech or censorship is existential to humanity or something. Elon tweeted that, right? And so he's right. been um, on this crusade in the name of free speech. And I think on the eve of the, the Turkish election the other night, there yeah, was, yeah. Um, you know, like, the Twitter censored some content in Turkey. You know, they've been known to do that in India in and around political events. And I think, you know, one of the issues that I've had a huge bone to pick about all this stuff because it's bullshit. We all know that his free speech thing is total bullshit. There's this amazing podcast that just came out on Wondery called Flipping the Bird and it's detailing, I don't know if you've seen this, it's detailing his buy of Twitter. And it really talks about how this all started because his ex-wife, two times ex-wife, Tallulah Riley, who they mentioned was a B-rate actress tweeted at him because of some trans joke that got censored on Twitter. This was when Jack was still running the company or something like that. And she had a fit about it. And then he starts in this tirade on Twitter about censorship. And so when you think about what he has done in Turkey, what he has done in India, how cozy he is with the Chinese, because how important important, you know, the Chinese are for Tesla's future growth. And when you think about the potential ramifications of him owning this personally and possibly censoring stuff that the Chinese don't want so he can maintain his foothold with Tesla in China, that's really dangerous. Talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, that is really dangerous and quite interesting. I mean, look, you've got Turkey and you have this election that we're in the process of now a recount. Seems like it could really be problematic. Then you know, and there's definitely censorship there. Then there's also the issue of what's happening in India with Modi. And I think we just don't have any transparency, right? I mean, Elon had a very interesting situation where he released all these files, part of the Twitter leaks. And the files didn't totally really show anything, but the sort of buildup around them. I mean, that is one of the brilliant things that Trump did was he was able to create a sort of post-truth atmosphere where he could say what something meant, even if it didn't mean that he could get his supporters to believe it. Elon did these Twitter files. He released them through a, diff a couple of different journalists, some of whom he later had falling outs with. These filings, you know, they didn't, they showed that different campaigns asked for things to be removed. I mean, they showed basically what we thought was happening behind the scenes. But what he didn't do and he didn't touch was what was happening with the Chinese government or what was happening with the Turkish government or what was happening with the, the government in India. And actually now we've seen some tweets about where he sort of said, you know, well, the <laughs> Turkey has asked us not to whatever. So like clearly there is some yeah. Turkish in election interference, the nuances of which we do not know and may never know. And I think like, there definitely is. I mean, it's very clear that this man is not a free speech absolutist, right? I think we yeah. can all agree that whatever Elon's doing here, it's not free speech. And again, I mean, I think it gets back to this larger problem with him, which is he's just a liar. I mean, you know, he says a lot of stuff where you're like, oh, that's great. You know, he said the ads in your replies would make you money. Remember that? 
Yeah. It never happened. I mean, he just says a lot of stuff that's not true. He's very Trumpy. And, you know, uh, some of that Trump base has been primed to believe things that aren't true. So he's come into the GOP base in a moment when they are very primed for believing stuff that's not true. Yeah, well, I'll just finish it here. I mean, like I've said this on numerous occasions and, and you know, he has taken many, many pages and many plays out of the Trump playbook over the last yeah. couple of years. And I just I just point people it did not end well for Trump, all of them. And, and like one by one, how, how he's operated, it, it just reminds me so much of it. And you could say, well, he's much smarter than Trump, but I'm not convinced. So he's sitting on one of the worst trades in the last few years in the financial markets, and that's buying Twitter for $44 billion. Because if you look at where the enterprise value of Snap, a company that monetizes its users, yeah much better and doesn't have a lot of the same issues that I think Twitter has on the censorship front, on the advertising front, on the you know whole host of things, that's got a $13 billion enterprise value now. Yeah. So, so he's probably down 75% or something on that. All right, well, listen, Molly John Fast of Fast Politics, you can find it wherever you find your favorite podcast. Also, you can follow her at mollyjongfast.bsk why dot social that would be <laughs> guy because you already probably follow her on the twitter and she's not tweeting a lot there molly thanks so much <laughs> thanks for having me if you like what you heard make sure to hit follow and leave us a review it helps other people find the show we also want to hear from you email us at contact at riskreversal.com